Welcome to the Business Titans podcast. I'm very excited to host you today. My name is Oscar Chavez, and today we have an incredibly special guest. We have Julie Batch, who is a chief, chief innovation and strategy officer for a top 10 ASX listed company. How are you doing today, Julie? I'm very well, thanks, Oscar. I'm joining you from home like most people are at the moment versus the office, but I'm really well. Thanks for having me. I'm so pleased to have you. I've been very excited to speak to you today because everybody likes to talk about strategy, but yet it is very difficult to execute on a strategy. So I'd love to start at the foundations. What is a strategy, Julie? Help help us understand what that is. <laughs> um, I, that's a good question. So I'm not a classically trained strategist uh, and I've only stepped into this role over the last six months, which has been a true baptism of fire uh, in relation to, to starting a, a strategy career, if you like. The way that I would articulate it is envis envisaging and imagining an organisation over a longer time horizon and then being able to understand where it is today and the plans that need to be put in place to, to take it to that, um, to its full potential. So uh, the choices that you make, the choices that you don't make, the way that you organise your resources and your people to get the best outcome for stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. And when, when you talk strategy, you are talking at a, at a, at a much higher level. And one of the things that, that, that any executive needs to do is spend a lot of time thinking, how do you go about that process? I mean, I did the other week, I did a mind map. We've got a, a big problem we're trying to solve. And you go through the process of creating a mind map and there's, there's stuff everywhere. There's just, you know, it takes a long time to think. Like thinking is one of the hardest skills that you can have as, as an executive. What, what are some of the tools and the techniques, the strategies that you use in order to really get a good grip on, well, what are the moving parts? What do I need to consider? Can you help us give, give us some guidance that way? Sure. So again, again, Oscar, I just really want to profess that I'm not a classically trained strategist. So I hear lots of things about, you know, two by twos, I've seen a four by four, you know, all of those kinds of, of things, are, um, you know, how to win maps, the way that I do it. And, and again, like I said, I've, I stepped into the role in February this year. And we've had a chance to really rethink the way that we approach strategy setting in our organisation, because we had to just in terms of, you know, the, the space we we're in, um, and the uncertainty that surrounded uh, us in sort of February, March. So what we've done is, is two things. So first of all, we had a very good vision around what the world looks like from an insurance perspective over the next five to 10 years. And a lot of that came from the work that we've done over the preceding period of time um, in, a, in the space that I used to look after, which was called Customer Labs, working with our group strategy team, but really exploring digital technologies, um, you know, changing customer behaviours and so on. And I know you've spoken to Mark Drasudis before because I watched that interview. He's a superstar. Um, so oh, really great. thinking out about the future. So we had this good idea of what insurance should be. But what we did, over, what we have done over the last six months is really gone and stress tested our company. So it's, it's being able to imagine and envisage a different space and um, learn from what's happened to other industries that have gone through change and disruption led by technology, um, but then also have a very good view around where you are today. So we've unpacked the company in many ways, pulled it apart and looked at it through very different lenses um, and put it back together so that we could see the choices we'd made in the past, where they got us to, how we'd been successful, but also what we needed to shift from an execution perspective to take advantage of that opportunity. So I like to work from data 
um, like to have lots of people around that are a little bit crazy and, you know, can think out there in, a, in an uncertain time horizon and then build a plan from that. Yeah, and I love that you, you know, you've referenced twice that you're not classically trained strategist, but the, I love that because one of the things you need to do in order to be to truly become more strategic is to, is to be creative, is to really take that time out to think about all the moving parts. And, and, and I, meet, I do meet a lot of executives that, that say, you know, I'm not creative. I don't have that creative angle. I like the structure. I like the, the methodology, the, the, you know, that rigor and structure. And sometimes in a strategy role, it's more around the culture that you're building. It's more around the team dynamic. It's more around the questions that you're asking your team. So I love that you're not, you know, classically trained, let's say, in strategy, because that would make you a really powerful strategist because you're not, you're not bogged down by the rules of old. Because like you said, it's good to get around good, good uh, disruptive thinkers, especially in this role that you play with, with innovation. So let me move on to then, we've talked a bit about strategy. What does innovation mean to you? Um, that's also a good question. I mean, I think just on the strategy topic, let's find out in five years whether, whether it works or not, because that's generally the time horizon. But I think, you know, you asked me a question around innovation and I actually really like your use of the word creativity. And I think that is so important in a business context that we embrace, celebrate and develop creative capability. And that's a lot around what innovation is. Um, I read this article and I can't remember his name, but he's the, the CMO of Burger King that just did that that ad, you know, with the, the decaying burger over a period of time, who said we should be treating creativity as a strategic asset. And I truly believe that's the case. So for me, innovation is, um, is around taking, working from the things that you know. Lots, lots of people will call innovation disruption. Maybe that's, that is what it is, but I think it's around having a deep understanding of something and then being able to look at it through different, a different lens. So to your point around bringing creative people around the right level of expertise that understands the topic that you're leaning into and then allowing those ideas to imagine a different way of doing something. I don't think most innovation is pioneering and groundbreaking, certainly not in um, long-standing financial institutions who have a huge social responsibility to deliver to their customer. For us, we're looking at how can we do things differently? How do we make the time to serve shorter? How can we reduce the number of points of impact by using a new technology and, and, and improving customer experience? So it's often reimagining what you already have. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm a big, uh, let's call it advocate for creativity because I am a creative. I came from a singing background and loved entertainment, all those kinds of things. And then I heard, do you know Jordan Peterson? Have you ever heard of him? Jordan Peterson. And uh, he talks a lot about the fact that creative people struggle a lot more to, to earn money because they are just, sometimes they, 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 they lack that ability to really bring that structure. So I think if you marry that in an organization really well and you allow yourself to throw that box away and think creatively, then it, then it gives you a much more powerful organization. Now, you, you talk a lot about data as well, Julian. You've got such a, such a wonderful career in terms of moving around from risk and then you know, innovation and strategy. How do all, the, do, do all those things marry up? Is, is risk associated with innovation? Do they, do, they, do they blend a similar world? What's your perspective on it? So, so um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, if you look at insurance, risk is our business, if you like. Everything. So, so in, in, in different, and, and it, what, what is very interesting 
is often um, people would look at insurance as conservative and controlled. And that is because at the end of the day, what we do is take risk. And so often what you'll find is people that will put out, you know, coverage of hundreds of millions of dollars, but they need to make sure that their controls are in place so that they're confident and comfortable to expose the companies to that, that kind of liability. So risk is intrinsic in what we do. I think what's very interesting, and so having that, having that background or having spent some time in risk, particularly now with financial services and, you know, we've had a um, Royal Commission and that's highlighted that, you know, customer and customer care needs to be front and centre. I think what's very interesting right now is how risk is changing. And to me, that's the exciting piece around innovation in insurance. So if you have a think about um, today when you, you know, I'm sure that you don't spend every waking moment, Oscar, thinking about insurance. I do. I'm sure that you don't. But um, today, insurance is about things that are tangible. So you can see your car. You can see when it's been damaged. You know, when your house needs to be repaired. You know, we, we see pictures on the news of uh, unfortunate disasters that occur. Those are things that make you realise, okay, well, that's something I need. I need to protect my assets. Often they're my largest source of wealth. What's changing and where innovation plays a really important role right now is that um, risk is becoming in some sense invisible. So our lives are moving online. Everything's digital. You know, we're putting our personal details, which is also a very valuable asset to us, um, you know, online all the time. Our data is flowing through the world in a completely different way. We're setting up our businesses from home. And so digital um, is critically important and risk is becoming invisible. So in insurance, it's how do we think about translating that step from traditional, you know, bricks and mortar type products into an online and digital world where people have very different exposures and how do you help a consumer base understand that? So that's what we're thinking about at the moment. Yeah, and it's, it's wonderful that it then ties into, into your customers and the experience that they have because that, that, that's the fundamental thing. When I... Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of a secret, Julie. When, when, I, uh, when I talk to companies about vision, because I, I truly believe the vision is the thing that really powers the organization. It, 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 it weaves through decision-making and it weaves through the way that we all behave with one another. I actually always point back to IAG and say, look at this vision. It, it is about making their world safer. And it's such a beautiful vision because it, 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 it bridges, it's, past, it's, it's deeper than insurance, deeper than car insurance. It's deeper than thinking, oh, if I hit my car, it's, you know, my house gets flooded. It's about making your consumers safer. And so does that then feed into your innovation agenda and, and your thought process behind, well, how do we get to this five-year milestone? Yeah, it absolutely does. So, um, and I'm really glad you raised it. So our, we've got the first airplane that's ever, that's flown in the last six months, just flying over my house at the moment. So sorry for any background noise, but um, it's, that's, it's the heart of IAG. So, so we have had uh, a vision statement and, and a purpose and it really cemented a few years ago um, under the leadership of Peter Harmer, our purpose is to make your world a safer place. Now, like there is in that, um, you know, if the world's safer, there's less insurance, but that is really what we're about. And it's more than a vision. It's actually the ethos that everybody in the company works to. 
So as soon as that purpose was sort of landed, everybody breathed a sigh of relief. Okay, that, that really works. And it guides everything. So it guides um, the way we think about our customers. You know, we've developed equity frameworks and product development guidelines and pricing principles to help um, you know, make sure that our customers have access to safe products, uh, that they understand the coverage they're giving and so on and so on. Um, but it's, and so it's how we show up every day, but it's also around how we innovate and how we build product. So we've got four or five things in our incubator right now, which are bringing our purpose alive. Um, we're looking at things like climate. You know, we've got an important role to play in making sure that you know, we've got great data and information. How do we surface that to help people understand the changing climate? Um, we've got lots of technology uh, and things that we're trialing around making cars safer. Um, and being able to, you know, live in your home with less concerns and less worry because you better understand, um, you know, your risk. So those are the kinds of things that we're incubating without giving away all of our details, Oscar. Yeah, yeah, of course. We always try to straddle that, that, uh, that differentiation between there's not too much you can share, but there's some things you can, you can talk openly about. Before this conversation, Julie, we, we talked about data and the criticality of that in our business. Can you share more about that for us? Sure. So we, um, like I, data is my passion. Um, so I can't code, but I'm, but I love looking at lists and lists of numbers. So, so that's a bit of a, bit of a giveaway and a bit unusual for, from a strategy point of view, but we started our data journey, I would say in about 2014, 2015, with a very, very modest investment in trying to pull our data together. Um, I probably blew that investment really quickly on some technology that, that should never have purchased, which pushed us into looking at using open source technologies to assemble our information in a different way because, you know, that was, that was a funding we had available. I think what that has made us do is look at data in our organisation completely differently. We've um, we at first probably didn't really know what value we had in our data, all hidden in transactions and policy information. What we've spent the last four or five years doing is pulling that out of all of the systems we have. We have something like 140, 150, 160 systems at IAG. Wow. So we've liberated all of that data and stitched it together so that we get a view of customer, a view of the assets that matter to them, um, and a view of the businesses that, that, that support them. And we can see those things and the relationships between those things in a different way. And that is incredibly powerful. So we've scratched the surface perhaps of what we can do with it, um, but we're starting to deliver, you know, um, real-time insights into our digital channels from a personalization point of view. It's shaped our segmentation. It's shaped our brand strategies. Um, it's helping inform our value propositions and it's completely changed the conversation that we have at board around you know how we're serving our customers um, so it's been it's been a, a very valuable exercise in terms of the way we think about it well, what are the key learnings through going through this because i mean I, I do speak to a lot of uh, large organizations and they all struggle with that element of, of data there's so much of it everywhere bringing it all into the into a single repository uh, does it make sense unless you know what outcomes you, you're trying? In fact, it could even complicate the organization um, and, and, and make the organization more confused. How do you how do you do that from a methodical perspective to make sure that at the end of that journey, you're getting the right 
you know, you're unleashing that data or you're, you're getting the, you're, you're harnessing the potential out of that data. So I also hear that a lot and, and um, the term use cases, which is one of my least two favourite words joined together because the use case and, and you know, those things are important uh, to, to know what you're going, what you're going to do, but I'm a big believer in discovery as well. And I think that links back to your creative call out earlier. So, so if you already know what you're going to do, how do you know what's there and what you could do? And so we've gone through the, what I would call close encounters of the third kind strategy, which is bring everything together. And if you build it, that they will come. And I think there is some truth to that. So we've continued to serve the organisation, but we've also had a vision around what our data could be for the future. And we've and, and assembling it all means that we can now do discovery in a completely different way. It's generally very costly. And so we've been lucky to find that, um, to find, you know, we've got a great data leader and we found a pathway to be able to assemble it relatively um, economically. Uh, and so, so for us, it's using the insight that it's generating, having the right people looking at it to discover new things and new opportunities. Yeah, I, I love the way you put it because it, it reminds me, I've, I've done a, a bit of work in uh, artificial intelligence and that's probably a topic I want to get down to in a, in a moment as well. But you're right, there's, there's certain things that a human being will just not be able to determine from that data. So having a machine go through that data and, and learn key insights about that data, I mean, this is how we pick up fraud models and how we pick up uh, you know, anti-money law and how we pick up counter-terrorists, right, is, is by, ca by capturing those outliers. So I think you're right. If you go into the journey of going, well, we want a data strategy, this is exactly what we want out of it because I know everything and my gut feel tells me everything and I'm always right, then you're not going to get the, the, the maximum uh, benefit out of that by, by putting it all together. Yeah. So I love that. Um, I always you, work on the basis of I know nothing and so yeah. what can I learn? And I think that mindset means that you keep trying, you keep focused on discovery before you um, cement into the right answer. Yes, and I, I think that mindset is what makes great leaders. And, and there's, there's too many leaders out there that don't have that mindset. It's more the, more the ego side. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you reconcile that, right? Because in, in the past, you know, when, when organisations were growing and, and, and building, it was more about gut feel, right? The CEO was always right. The leader's always right just because they're right. And you just got to follow them and do what they say. How do we then shift that culture to say, you know what? It's, it's, it's more about the data. We've got to make better decisions. How do you, how do, you do that? So, so we've gone through, I mean, I generally don't get high marks on rule following just from, you know, in terms of that, those feedback sessions in saying that it's with a strong risk grounding so um so i think you've got to be prepared to to push the boundaries a little bit um i i would say that what we have done and the approach that we've taken is that we have tried to and it's often not always received this way but we've tried very hard to say look let's take the um judgment and emotion out of you know out of decisions and have a look at what the information's telling us. We haven't settled too fast on that being the truth because you can always find data that gives you different insights, but just over time progressively built up a knowledge base um, and strengthened and expanded that knowledge base until it becomes a source of truth for the company. 
Um, we were lucky in the structure that we had before around customer labs in the way we set it up. We also had the AI team, the artificial intelligence team, and the marketing team and the customer team and the digital team close together. And so we were able to um, create, I guess, rapid utilization of those insights and put them in the right place at the right time. Um, the company's using that more readily now, so it's appropriate to move those things back closer to the customer. But we had a good chance to set up great systems um, early that helped the company shift. That's great. And how, how do you, how do you do that in terms of, you know, in, in such a large organization with so many employees, how do you, how do you break down the silos? How do you increase collaboration? So in, again, that's, that's always a challenge in big, in big companies. I think purpose alignment helps. And I think, I think, you know, most everybody at IAG is there to help the customer. In our brand promise under NRMA, which is one of our key brands, is help, H-E-L-P. That's why I joined the company, because I just thought that was so strong and amazing um, a long time ago now. But we've brought that back, as you will see. And that's kind of what people do. How do we help get a better outcome for our customers? Because often we're dealing with those customers in really traumatic times. You know, you're, the, the way that our product, which by the way is a data product, and we, we build our price and, and so on from our historical information. Um, you know, the, when we have a proper interaction with our customers, when something generally unpleasant has happened in their life, you know, their, their home or their vehicle, and sometimes, sometimes to the point of being traumatic. So a big part of our DNA is helping people, helping them be safer and making sure they get back on their feet quickly. And that drives a lot of collaboration. So when you can say, well, this is not about me, this is about helping our customer get a better outcome here, people go the extra mile in our company and put aside, um, you know, the things to get stuff done because that's what we're there for. Mm. And, and I love these conversations because there are a lot of, uh, you know, business owners that are not running billion-dollar companies and you ask them to explain their vision and, 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 their, and their purpose and they have no idea. It's, it's, it's kind of up in the air. But if that's, if that's the case, you truly can't align your organization and, and, and let it flourish because that's what, that's what innovation is all about, right? It's about better. That's, if I was to sum up innovation in one word, it'd be just better. How do we do better than what it's been done before? Yeah. It, like you said, it doesn't have to fundamentally revolutionize everything and it doesn't need to be you know, big, bold and, and, and courageous, but it is that, that journey of better. And if we can get 1% better, and it's like personal development, right? If you can get 1% better every day, yeah. in 365 days, you've, you've, you've made incredible progress. Yeah. So I love the that law you, of inches. Yes, the law of inches, right? So, so Oscar, I mean, I just, just to sort of build on your call out around purpose, it took us 150 years to, to get the purpose we've got today. And we've had different ways of articulating that same thing in the past, but these words really changed things. I think what's very interesting, if you look at purpose-led organisations and under, um, understand that that's the purpose that is relevant for that business, so, so they may be different in the way they're articulated, a lot of the most valuable companies in the world have them. So if you look at, I mean, Google is organise the world's information and make it whatever it is, universally accessible. I've probably missed a couple of words there, but, you know, you know what I mean? Like that you look around at, at those companies, Salesforce, Apple and so on, um, Southwest Airlines, they're all able to speak 
to their purpose. Um, you know, USAA, who's a company we look at in the US very strongly, but it takes a while to get there. Um, and I think what, what a lesson from us around those founder organisations like Apple, like, you know, say, like some of the technology organisations, it's the purpose that carries through when the founder moves on. That, that's the thing that unites people and speaks back to the original vision. Um, and it took us a long time to get one that worked for us. So I would encourage any, any smaller business, um, you know, take your time and find something that, that, that resonates for you and your customers because once you get it, it really changes the trajectory. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a great book. I don't know if you've read it, Julie, called, um, it's, uh, I think it's something, something to do with Habit by Charles Dunhig. But he, have you come across that? I read the before? first chapter of all of these books, if I'm honest, Oscar, because I think <laughs> that's, the, that's the chapter with the insights. So, yeah. I, yes, I've read the first chapter. Yeah, yeah. And, and he talks a lot about habit setting within a culture and it really does start from the vision down. And when there's a new CEO, a lot of CEOs go through the numbers and they talk about forecasts and projections and shareholders and this kind of stuff. But if you have a CEO that's really a bit more visionary and uh, there was one example we talked about was there's a manufacturing company that they turned around by just talking about safety. That was it. So one goal of the whole organization. So forget all the financial metrics and all that kind of stuff less injuries on site. That's what we care about. That's the one thing, that's our vision. We want people to go home safely to their families. And they, be, they ended up becoming the number one manufacturing firm. So there's, you know, and, and we talk a, a lot about a culture a lot in, in, in leadership circles, because it really is, you know, if you set up the right vision and the right strategy, and I love how yours is, you know, it took 150 years or whatever it is to get there, but people need to think the long game. How can this vision survive my life, past my life? How can it go on for the next 100 years? I think if you can get a vision that strong, that it really helps build the foundation of your of, of your life, really. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think so. Because because at the end of the day, you know, we're here for a short time, our, you know, an even shorter time in the life of a lot of companies, but you know, particularly ours. So it's what do you what's the the vision and the culture that supports it that you that that embodies the company when you when you've moved on. Um, you know, and, and I think that's what's really special about our purpose. I can't imagine it changing. I can't imagine it changing, actually. I think it's there, it's stuck, and it's very meaningful to everyone. Uh, one comment around, around um, you know, your call out there. I also think you need a set of values that support the vision. So, so and that's, that's really important today when you look at um, some of the system failings that are that have occurred and, and are occurring uh, you know around the world whether it's whether it's government whether it's um you know some of the technology players or whether it's in you know business and and business performance and behavior over the last period of time i think you need a really strong set of values that match that vision so if your vision is make the world a safer place you know our values we we embody under the moniker of heart you know, we honest and upfront and so on and so on. And, and, you know, that's how we want to be. So they support that vision. If you've got a purpose to the one that you, you know, you shared earlier, which is make it the, the most effective, efficient manufacturing plant and, and your vision is, some, and your values don't support that. You know, if our values didn't support that, if they were, 
um, competition and power and whatever they might be, poor choices of words, but you know, that's not that they've got to fit together. So people have to be inspired and then feel like that's the place that that's the place they're working as well. Yeah. And it's, it's about the emotion as well, right? It's, it's, if you've got the right emotion in your, in your business, then you could really unlock that. And I spoke to Mark Rasidis about this, right? Unlocking the potential, right? If, if you've got people emotionally engaged, and that's how you do it with such a, a big meaningful purpose that just that, that far exceeds anything you could achieve in your life. And it's, it's, it's infinite. It's something that, that lasts forever. Um, now to switch gears a little bit, you talk about ethical AI, and I've, I've seen somewhere on your profile, you're really, really interested in, in AI and ethical AI. Help us understand, what, what does that actually mean, ethical AI? So, um, well, like I said, insurance is a data product. So we build our prices based on models with thousands, millions of inputs. Uh, and so increasingly, just, just you know, we, we've also referenced AI, those models are run by running an automated way. Um, you know, a lot of what we put, I'm holding my phone up here. Most of my life is now on my phone. Um, yep. You know, a lot of that is automation, machine learning, um, you know, next best messaging, all of that driven by machines that are using my data and preferences to drive the next, um, the next thing they put in front of me. I think we have a very small moment in time before the data that is, and data, you know, is, is growing exponentially daily, um, you know, before that data and the decisions the machines are making become so voluminous and so fast that we can't understand it, I think we've got a moment in time where we can set up the right systems, the right controls and the right processes to make sure those machines that don't have the soft skills of empathy or creativity or judgment you know, they're, they're machines that make yes, no decisions based on the inf information that's put in front of them um, before they that becomes so complex that we can't understand them. So, you know, in insurance, we want to make sure that any bias that might exist in our historical data, just because we may have an underrepresented segment, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years, isn't then hard-coded into the choices we make in the future. So we at IAG have an ethics committee. Uh, it's, it's, it's led by our CEO and the chair of it is Simon Longstaff from the Ethics Centre. And so we have an ethics committee that helps us guide the decisions we make as they relate to customer. And we recognise how important those mathematical decisions are as well. So we've founded the Gradient Institute together with Sydney University um, and CSIRO to help try to build some of the rules, regulations and choices um, that we might make as a society when we start looking at algorithmic decision-making. Does that make sense? It sounded, that was a long, long talk, wasn't it? I, I, just, I was smiling while you said it because I just, I, I, I love that. I love that angle. I, I have not, you know, you, you think about ethics a lot when it comes to AI and you see Sophia and, and these AI robots that are, that are being built, but you, you've put it, so eloquently around, well, sometimes machines might make the wrong decisions because they're not human beings. And we need to make sure that we look at the data and realize that there are human beings represented behind that data because to make decisions based on mathematics may not be ethical. And, and I love that you've taken that approach to, to really push that forward and, and set up an institute and, and look at the way that we all make decisions. I think that's, I think that's so powerful, Julie. 
Thanks. And I mean, it's very important that that institute is not for profit. So, you know, this is about trying to do something for good for society. Um, there's this great quote by, or I listened to this great interview by Sundai Pichai of um, Microsoft. It's Microsoft, isn't it? Yes. So um, he talked about, he talked about, um, a, it was being interviewed about AI. And the question was, um, you know, isn't AI dangerous? You know, why do you think it's so transformative and so fundamental? Isn't that dangerous? And his response was, well, so was fire and electricity until we learned how to control it. And I think it's the same, right? It's, it was a great quote. Um, and I think it's the same thing is, is how do we make sure that we, we, we put the right controls in so we can reap the rewards, which are vast. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And fear is the opposite end of, um, you know, if, you, if you're trying to go through that process of unleashing your potential or trying to do those things, then fear is the other end of the spectrum of what stops people from achieving more. So That's I think right. you're right. We have, to, we have to embrace the tools and the resources that we have available to us, but also understand the risks and put mitigative controls in, in, in place to make sure that we don't end up where we don't want to end up. Because it's like everything, right? Even fire, unwielded and uncontrolled is detrimental. AI as yeah. well will be, will be detrimental to society if it's not um, controlled in an effective manner. So I like that. That, that philosophy around making sure that we use AI properly and that it's not dangerous. I think mean, that's so important. And he's the CEO of Google too, by the way. So not, not Microsoft. So there you go. I, I need an implant in my brain from a memory perspective. Neural so I apologize for making that mistake. Sorry. A great no, quote. No, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think we will be plugged into AI one day? I think we already are. Yeah. You're Don't right. you? I mean, literally, I won't go anywhere without this thing. I've shown you it twice now. And I have subcontracted a very significant part of my brain, as you just saw, into that device. There's things I don't think about anymore that don't compute at all. I just don't need to. So I, yeah. I think we already have, in a way. Do I think yeah. it'll ever be embedded? Yeah, possibly I do. Maybe not in my lifetime, but I think I think it will, I think we will have. A greater degree of um, human machine integration. Yeah, I, I don't mind the air gap at the moment, just because you know when you plug things into the internet, there's bad people on the internet. But um, but but I think it's I think it's inevitable, and I, and I you know the, the brain is not the greatest of storage locations. Um, however, it's a great processing center, right, for for that intuition when you when you tap into that creativity and you just allow the thoughts to happen. You know, a lot of great CEOs have great thoughts in the shower or you know while they're exercising. Um, I actually create time to think. I, I lock out a 30-minute um, spot in my calendar every day just for thinking. What, what's next? What's the future hold? Where, where are we heading towards? What problems are we solving? What's working? What's not working? Those, those types of things. Um, you mentioned as well technology underpinning before we, before we talk. You talked about <clears throat> the customer experience and the role of technology. How, does, how, how, do, we, how do we do that better? How do, we, how do we make sure that our customers get a better experience and how do we use technology to achieve that? So I think we need, in my mind, technology is around how you deliver the insight more rapidly that's going to help the customer make a decision or fulfil a need. So um, often, and, and one of the challenges and why you see uh, so much discussion around fintech or intratech or, you know, whatever 
first part of an industry you want to connect with the word tech um, is because those those companies are looking at exactly that so the biggest the biggest motivator is how fast you can deliver a service and technology is about that it's instantaneous decisions um, and putting that in front of the customer as quickly as possible the challenge that a lot of organizations like ours have is that we have huge swathes of technology and systems, core systems, often that we've acquired over a very long time that often, you know, and in the case of IG, we, we've um, expanded through M&A over the last 20, 30 years. So we've, we've bought system on system on system each time we have acquired a new company and, you, and they do very important functions. So consolidating them is complicated so that you can then build that, that, um, that rapid processing and insight on top of them. And we spend, and every, every legacy organisation, if that's what you call them, I'd like to call us heritage organisations, but every one of us spends a lot of money and you, you only need to pick up the paper today to see another comment on that, that we spend a lot of money trying to consolidate and streamline our core systems so that we can deliver great customer experience on top of them. I'm a bit of, um, I'm a bit maybe radical in views to an extent, radical for, you know, just putting it in the context of an insurance company, but, um, in that I think there's a lot more that can be done with the data layer, directly from the data layer, than we um, currently anticipate and I th or currently utilise. And I think that's where we're spending a bit of time focused. It's what mm. um, many new businesses see as the huge value piece is how you mine and drive that insight and deliver that through. So we Absolutely. keep close eye on every piece of Intratech that's going on, where they're looking generally at a point in our value chain as opposed to the entire value chain. We, we watch it and we look at how we can learn and share and collaborate with those businesses and potentially sometimes invest in them to help to help lift that, that customer experience. Mm. So speaking of the data layer, there's a lot of talk now in the industry around reference data and, and master master data management. Is that something that you that you think of, or what? Everyone has a different opinion on what, what it means. But what what does that mean to you? So absolutely, we do, and and um, in insurance, it's very very important. So um, you know, I would say that. And, and it's particularly relevant when you look across our multiple systems. So, so we might label something in one system one way and label something in another system that we've, you know, we've inherited in a slightly different way that, that, that creates a very different set of meanings and yet it's the same piece of information. So we spend a lot of time, because we're, we, we sell data product essentially, we spend a lot of time um, managing and maintaining our data set. It's more important for companies with multiple systems, maybe, than ones that are starting from new with one, mm, because yeah. you can build those processes in, they're just part of your day one, day one effort. We're, we're putting a lot of time and energy now into making sure that, that, that everything's tagged, labeled, and appropriately stored. It sounds like a Herculean task. <laughs> with, with so many, I mean, you mentioned a hundred and something odd systems and, and lots of M&A as well and a rich history, right? I mean, that, that, that's something to, to take into the future, but that's your power, right? That, that is how you 
make the next 150 years work and how you provide so many yeah. jobs for this economy, right? It's absolutely. It's also our business. So we often ensure, um, you know, the probability of an earthquake occurring in a certain location. We have to think over a 250-year to a 1,000-year time horizon. I know that sounds odd. And we have to um, price that probability into a contract that we sell annually. So having good access to the past, you know, what perils have occurred, what storms have occurred, you know, what losses you've had is actually critical to be able to price effectively as something that, that we're predicting to occur in the future. So, so you know, it's, it's, it's our future, but it's also our current because, um, because of the, the, you know, because of the industry that we're in. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And, and now I've never heard anyone talk about that thousand year outreach. I've, I've heard one of the, uh, one of the executives at, at another firm talk about 10 year strategy, but factoring in a thousand years, that, that is, that's amazing. And, and do you, do you, you know, but those insights that you're able to gather, does that go back into, into government and, and, you know, based on where we're innovating or where we're investing dollars uh, from a regentrification perspective, or does, does that all feed in together? Yeah, in select ways it does. So, so to give you a couple of examples, we set up um, a, a, a group called, we named it an insurance name, so very, very long and hard to remember, but the Australian Business Roundtable for Disaster Resilience in Safer Communities about yeah. 10 years ago. And that brought together um, ourselves, a company named Munich Re, who's a reinsurer, um, Westpac Bank, Optus, Investor Property Group and the Australian Red Cross. And we created a partnership where we selectively shared um, data insights, not customer data, but insights around um, the frequency and impact of storms and events. And, and we built out a series of um, pieces of work that we shared with government uh, around how we felt we could create together a safer Australia that was um, able to withstand natural perils to a greater degree. And we did that by combining all of that insight. We also do things like share motor accident data with um, the Motor Accidents Authority and so on and so on to tell them, and, and other, other of our peer organisations like Suncorp do this as well, where there are dangerous hotspots that people are being injured um, in car accidents so that they can put a, an intervention from a traffic perspective in, in, that, in that place. So we do those kinds of things. And, and with a purpose like we have, it's very important that we, we're prepared to share those insights. Yeah, and it's so powerful. I mean, that's, that's why IG is as powerful as it is because, you know, it is a, it is a, it is a, it is a what's, what's the word? It's a, it's a loop, it's a circle, right? People are investing in insurance to keep their lives safer, but in turn, you're making certain areas and, and, and creating a better Australia for everybody. So it's, that's what I love about capitalism, right? It's, it's like you, you get the ability to create whatever you want to create, but also feed back in to make your organization much more powerful. And that, that is what creates a powerful organization. Julie, we could talk about this all day, but we don't have the time. Is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't? <laughs> um, no, I think you've covered almost everything, Oscar. So I appreciate it very much for having a chance to talk to you today. Wonderful. Hang back for two seconds. I'll stop the recording. But thank you, everybody, for watching the Business Titans podcast. And reach out to Julie and say thank you. How can people access you? Probably not very easily. 
<laughs> I'm sure that there's some form of technology you could find me on, LinkedIn probably. Um, very sparse for meeting times, but, but you know, reach out on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Julie. One sec.